This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Facebook unveiling details of its independent oversight board is kind of a Supreme Court of sorts for Facebook content decisions. The board, in a 46-page document, sharing its bylaws, including that anyone who disagrees with Facebook's decision to take down their content will have 15 days to submit appeal. The board will select cases with the greatest potential to guide Facebook's future policies, and cases are expected to be ruled on and acted upon within 90 days, though cases can be expedited. Last month, Facebook revealed the names of the first 20 members of the Facebook Oversight Board, a body charged with conducting independent reviews of content removals. The group includes many well-known experts in the fields of human rights, journalism, law, and social media. There are no Canadians in the initial group, but an additional 20 members is expected to be added in the future. The announcement received at best a mixed greeting. Some welcomed the experiment in content moderation, while others argued that the board will have no influence over anything that really matters. Professor Nicholas Souser of the Queensland University of Technology in Australia was named as one of the first 20 members. The author of Lawless, The Secret Rules That Govern Our Digital Lives, Nick has been critical of Facebook and other internet platforms and raised concerns about the oversight board when it was first announced. He joins me on the podcast to discuss the Oversight Board, the initial criticisms, and his views on how the Board can have a positive impact in addressing complex issues that strive to balance freedom of expression with concerns about online harms. Note that our conversation was recorded before U.S. President Donald Trump issued an executive order targeting Internet platforms after Twitter fact-checked one of his tweets and issued a warning on another. The podcast will examine those latest developments in a future episode. Nick, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Before we get going, uh, certainly from the news, it looks like things in Australia are at least better than what we're experiencing in Canada or in North America. How are things for you dealing with uh, the public health crisis? Yeah, we're we're pretty grateful that rate of community infections here in Australia is very low, uh, so we're starting to ease the restrictions. We're in a much better position than uh, than than many other countries around the world. So it's a, it's good. It's going to be a big challenge as we go forwards, but uh, we're starting in a good position. Yeah, no, good for you. And uh, we're looking with some amount of envy, I think, here, especially at Australia, New Zealand, to see how much you've achieved and how far you've come. Hopefully, we'll follow in not too distant future. Um, we've also, I think, been following, many people have been following some of the developments with Facebook and the Oversight Board. Uh, and to see your name on it, the person who's really studied these issues and at times been critical of some of the, the processes, I think says a lot. And I'm really glad that you've been willing to come on to talk a bit about the Oversight Board and uh, the process to get on and and some of the issues that have been raised. Why don't we start with some of the basics for those that aren't familiar with it? What is the Facebook Oversight Board and what is it meant to achieve? So the the Oversight Board is an experiment. It's more than anything. It's an attempt to try to bring some accountability to Facebook. 
This is obviously something that we have been struggling with for a long time. As you say, I've been uh, quite critical of Facebook and other social media platforms for many years now, particularly about their history of making decisions in secret without really explaining the basis upon which those are made, um, without really having regard to international human rights norms or other standards that we might expect for. So, the Oversight Board is currently a group of 20 people who will form panels to hear appeals about content decisions on both Facebook and Instagram. And we will decide whether Facebook has made the right decision in those cases against both their own policies, but importantly, also against international human rights norms. And our decisions will be binding. So if we decide that content should be put back up, it will immediately be put back up by Facebook. But more importantly, we have a policy function in that we can make recommendations that Facebook is obliged to uh, respond to publicly. Now, this is not the a case of the, the oversight board making policy directly, but a case of trying to hold Facebook to account for the policies that it chooses to implement. And I think that's a really powerful potential, or potentially a really powerful option to try to make Facebook more accountable in the way that it um, enforces its decisions, but also in the actual policy that it uses to govern how billions of people around the world communicate. It's interesting. So it's more than just uh, an oversight board in the sense of some people have called it almost like a Facebook court. But in this case, you're talking about policy recommendations as well. It's early days, of course. Have you sorted out what some of the processes will look like for potentially an appeal or for the development of policy on the oversight board? No, so we're still running through and working out how we're going to best work together, uh, noting that we've only really been together for, for under a month now. Uh, and the, the decision was made early on in the process that the board has to have a lot of autonomy in determining its own processes. So there's work ahead for us uh, before we can start hearing any cases to figure out how we're going to work together, how we're going to deliberate, how we're going to um, make decisions in the, on you know the most controversial issues in content around the world, this is not going to be an easy process. So we're still uh, learning how to work together and how we're going to do that. You mentioned 20 members to start. I know there's the prospect of expanding it by an additional 20. What led you to become a member of the Oversight Board? So this is a fairly natural, maybe not natural, this is an extension of a lot of the work that I've been doing uh, over the last dozen or so years. Uh, a lot of that was, you know, from our position in academia, standing on the sidelines and criticising what platforms were doing to regulate how people behave online. And so I've long had a really deep interest in this question of legitimacy. What are we actually expect from private social media platforms when they exercise so much power over our lives and how might we actually push them to do better so it's interesting because I, I just finished my book at the end of um, at, at the end of 2018 it came out uh, last year and in that I wrote you know the, the end point of that book is that maybe we need to experiment with different ways of doing what I call um, constitutional work, finding, finding ways to 
um, require pressure, lobby for private companies to pay more attention to the sorts of governance values and what we expect from the people who uh, make decisions that impact our lives, due process, transparency, a substantive commitment to human rights. And almost as soon as I uh, handed that book in, uh, Facebook and, and Mark Zuckerberg uh, announced the creation of a, uh, an oversight board. I think Zuckerberg at that stage was calling it the Supreme Court of Facebook. So it's exactly in line with some of the recommendations that um, that I think tech companies need to put in place in order to limit or constrain their power and their discretion to um, to shape the, and enforce the rules for participation for people online. So over the last um, uh, over the last 18 months or so, I've been doing a little bit of work getting involved with Facebook in some uh, in a few consultations about how this board should be constituted, what its bylaws should be, and I've been I was happy to to feed into that process. Uh, ultimately, I decided to. Uh, put in a, an application to join the board and we went through a long selection process towards the end of last year and culminating in the uh, informal announcement on uh, about a month ago. So it was you that decided to put your name forward, having seen some of the consultation processes and, of course, trying to build on some of the work that you'd been doing. Yeah. I Like many others, I'm, I start from a position of deep scepticism about the extent to which tech companies will willingly impose limits on their power. So one of my key concerns going through this process, so as we, uh, as I watched and tried to feed into the development of the board, uh, was to see whether it was genuine, see whether the um, there was enough will within the company itself that the uh, the board would be a real um, limit on power. And obviously we see that in massive uh, technology companies, even if there's a, uh, a human rights team, for example, they're not always empowered within the company to, to make changes on product or, uh, or, or legal positions or policy positions. So the first thing that was important to me was to to see that there was genuine engagement with uh, human rights and a commitment to do better. And I think I, I was really pleasantly surprised by the level of depth in the thinking about how to how to try this, something that hasn't really been tried before, um, and give it the best shot possible. So there was a lot of work put into making sure that the board would be independent, immune from pressure from Facebook or even um, or other parties, government and, and private actors around the world who obviously have an interest in how Facebook's rules are applied. In the end, I think the, the charter, the bylaws, the independent trust that governs the board at arm's length from Facebook, I think is really crucial to maintaining that independence. This isn't a guarantee that it's going to work and be successful, but I think it's set up um, well enough that I've got, I've got the confidence that, we, that this is something that we should try. Uh, it is, again, an experiment, uh, but... I think that the pieces are here that we might be able to make a real difference in how Facebook uh, determines its policies and applies them. 
Yeah. No. Well, it's you know, as 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 a person who was quite skeptical, it's interesting to to see how we've been brought around to to the notion that this is a serious attempt at at ex- at least an experiment to address some of these issues. Now, you've you highlighted a number of potential concerns associated with this with this approach that that Facebook announced back even when it was first announced. I thought we might start with a piece you wrote in 2019, and then touch on some of the other comments that we've seen circulating since the Facebook announcement. But in the piece that you wrote, you wrote about the challenge that a board might face in trying to decide difficult issues. There's, of course, differences in terms of the bar that gets set for illegal content, which presumably often will get removed regardless, versus harmful content, uh, which sometimes will have a, a will have a different bar. Have any of those issues been addressed in terms of any sort of guidelines, or are you kind of going in and it will be up to the board to to begin to set some of those parameters? So the board does have a bit of work ahead of it to start um, developing a uh, an, an approach that sets out the things that we think are most important to consider in evaluating some of these controversies. But the core issue here is that we're dealing with and and we're dealing with controversies over speech that don't have clear answers. These are such important questions worldwide precisely because people disagree about uh, what the policy should be and and how we should um, evaluate the tension between different rights particularly. So that process is really tough. When I... Well, my first thought when we were talking about this over a year ago, when Facebook announced uh, that it was intending to build uh, some sort of uh, external oversight board, my main concern at that stage was how that board would actually make decisions. How would it resolve some of these controversies that to date no one has been able to satisfactorily uh, resolve? And I was concerned particularly by two things here. The first, the companies like Facebook, other tech companies, are always going to exercise a lot of discretion. There are minimum legal standards around the world that we might expect the companies to to comply with. But... Above that minimum standard, there's a lot of discretion that goes into determining what the uh, rules for a particular platform ought to be and how you enforce those rules. That's always something that we are going to have to live with. So we are, I think, always going to need some sort of self-regulatory approach. This is not to say that... um, Regulation isn't important. Regulation is fundamentally important to constrain the discretion of social media platforms, but it will never be on its own sufficient. So what we really need here, I think, not just in Facebook's case, but for other platforms as well, is some sort of mechanism to regulate the exercise of the platform's own discretion when the law doesn't have much to say in that in that border area between that's not uh, strictly unlawful speech but is harmful speech or controversial speech. And the challenge here for tech companies in the past is that they haven't had a clear answer to how they make decisions about that sort of content. The 
the real problem, I think, of the last five or so years, maybe 10, 10 years particularly, as some of these controversies have become uh, more high profile, is that we haven't known what the companies actually stand for. The strategic goal of uh, social media companies for a long time was to try to pretend that they were neutral uh, in the uh, in, in providing a, a platform for speech that didn't really discriminate on the type of things that people could do. That veneer of neutrality um, was rhetorically powerful, but it was completely false, and it's always been false. It's only in recent years, though, that I think we're seeing a larger social acknowledgement from people and indeed lawmakers all around the world that technology companies, social media platforms do actually uh, intervene a lot in the types of uh, interactions and communications that we might have online. So the problem here, and this is a long-winded answer to your question, I'm sorry, but the, it is complex. The way I see it, the real problem here is that for a long time, we didn't really have a set of standards to understand how a company like Facebook might uh, see its own policies and how it might um, decide between competing interests. The, the values of Facebook at the time the board was announced were relatively vague. Um, they, they said things like concern for speech, but also a concern for safety and, and a couple of other things that they thought was important. So I thought that was one of the key challenges and that would be one of the key challenges for resolving disputes. I am happy at least that Facebook has responded in two ways to that concern. Um, the first is to clarify its values. So it had a, a new... Um, uh, it revised its corporate values last year, I believe, and came out with a statement that does prioritise uh, freedom of expression. And this is interesting. Other people might have preferred some different values, but Facebook's uh, core baseline here is erring on the side of protecting freedom of expression. Then that helps you, I think, to see how the platform that Facebook is trying to build might work its way through some of these controversial issues when you need to weigh freedom of expression issues against other concerns. The Facebook, in those value statements, also made a clear commitment to safety and some other uh, principles that will shape the limits of its policies on promoting uh, voice and, and the ability of people to both seek and uh, impart information. So I think that goes part of the way to addressing some of my concerns, but the main thing I think that gives me some hope in this uh, in this process is an explicit commitment to international human rights norms as the way to work through these issues. Human rights analysis doesn't give you a determinative answer in a lot of these cases, but it gives us the language to be able to work through the impact of policies. And when you have, for example, a policy that is aimed to uh, protect safety and necessarily has some costs on freedom of expression as a result, 
international human rights norms or, or discourse gives you the language to evaluate the, the size of the potential harms of that policy and to work out whether the, um, whether the policy is well adapted, is necessary and is proportionate to achieving the, um, the goals and limiting the harm to human rights. And so that's what really I think I see as the, the big opportunity here, that by stepping outside of platform values to international human rights norms, we then have a yardstick by which we can evaluate the policies and the decisions that they make that is not the, the sort of empty rhetoric that we've seen over the last decade. Fair enough. The, the, there's almost two sides to the coin. There's the question of how you make some of these choices, and you've identified how this may provide an advancement in that regard. There's also, of course, the who, and you're part of a, of a group of, of 20, as we've mentioned. One of the most consistent concerns, you raised it as well early on, is the localization challenge, talking about different cultures, different norms from around the world. You highlighted it already. Uh, and the challenge of having those differing views represented. So there are no Canadian representatives, for example, at least not yet. In the United States, we've seen some argue that the five representatives that they have out of 20 is insufficient, whereas other countries might say that that would already be having a quarter of the, the board is too many. I guess the question becomes your thoughts on this issue of, of how do you ensure you can be representative at a time when effectively you can't have every country represented? Uh, and given that you can't, how do you address those kinds of concerns? The fundamental challenge of understanding local context, I think, is is the best way to really understand this because we're never you we're never going to be able to design a system that is representative of every perspective, not just every country, but uh, all of the diverse perspectives of people all around the world. I and I don't think you know for a, an. A, a body that adjudicates essentially on disputes, a body that hears appeals, I'm not sure that representativeness is the best measure. What I do think is really important is sensitivity to context. One of the big criticisms that's been made about how tech companies have been enforcing their rules over the last uh, couple of decades is that they have taken a, usually a particularly American approach uh, and an approach informed by American values and, and American uh, free speech values in particular, and that they have made decisions from a perspective that doesn't really understand the local context. And so a lot of the scholarship in this area, for example, highlights how impossible it is to understand uh, the impact of potentially harmful hate speech without being first in the particular culture and the historical context of the country or the, the region in which it's taking place and the people or cultural ethnic of a group that against whom the speech is targeted. So how do you fix that problem? Um, I think 
you know, the first issue is prioritizing diversity, which I think has been done relatively well so far, although there's still some way to go as the board grows from 20 to 40 people. Uh, we really hope to be as diverse as possible because we know that more diverse teams make better decisions and we're more likely to be sensitive to some of the issues, really important issues that come before us. The second um, important thing that we can do here is to really make sure that we get, that we try to identify what it is that we don't know and get the information that we need about local context into this process. The, when you think about the disputes that people have had when they've had something taken down on the social media platform, um, you often see real problems with counter speech. You see people who are, for example, trying to talk back to racism, to call out racism or, uh, or homophobia or other issues that are, that are prevalent or they're seen in their communities. And that is often flagged and removed um, because of the way these systems are set up to respond to user flags. And we know that, that content, you know, minority content is often really, um, is, could be disproportionately flagged and, and removed without real sensitivity. So one of the key concerns here has been the that the people in going through those processes are not able to provide additional context. It happens in hate speech. It happens when people are being um, abused or, uh, you know, you have, we, we hear a lot from domestic violence advocates, for example, that they're unable to explain to a platform that a message that on its surface might look benign from their ex-partner is actually in context really um, and threatening. So finding a way to get that context into the decision-making process, I think, is really important. And we need to make sure that we can hear from both the individuals who are, um, who are concerned about the decision, but also to bring in the best research and, and, and scholarly knowledge about how we should learn from the history of particular regional contexts and the, the structure of discrimination in different countries, the patterns of communication in a way that will help us make sure that the rules are applied in a way that is much more sensitive to the, the variety and diversity of issues that we're going to face. Okay, that's a thoughtful answer too. It is a really thorny problem to be sure. Uh, a couple of other critiques that I thought we, we could touch on before we wrap up. Uh, Siva Vajanathan, who's a well-known scholar in the area, wrote a critique in Wired that generated quite a lot of attention. And he stated plainly that, that in his view, the new Facebook, and I'll quote, the new Facebook review board will have no influence over anything that really matters in the world. Now that question of scope, which you cover and then all the issues and concerns people have with Facebook that is not covered uh, is, in a sense, I think what he's getting at there. What are your thoughts about that critique? I really respect Siva's work and his position here, and I, I take on board some of the concerns that he's raised, particularly um, 
you know, particularly around misinformation and how we're going to address some of the, the really big challenges to democracy and to society. I do think that the the scope of the board is a is a really important issue, obviously. Currently, the scope is set as a first um, as a first pass to content disputes over material that's removed. So this includes hate speech, harassment, issues of safety, issues of privacy. It also includes misinformation, advertising, particularly importantly, also political advertising and really tricky issues around incitement to violence, war crimes, genocide, stuff that really is important to many people around the world. So I do think even as a, at a, as a first stage that there's a role for this oversight board to play. Obviously, it can't fix all problems and it's not designed, and I hope it doesn't in any way, diminish, to diminish um, Facebook's responsibility to design its network in a way that is good, that works and that provides a benefit to society and respects and promotes fundamental human rights. We don't want to take that responsibility away from Facebook, but we do think that the content disputes that we're going to be addressing are fundamentally important disputes. They're complicated disputes that people have been complaining about for many years. They're disputes over issues that do lead to real harm to real people all around the world. And I think that we've got a role to play here in improving the quality of the decision-making process and the policies of Facebook. I'd also note that I, th I think it's important that we expand the scope as rapidly as possible. At the moment, we're focusing on the um, on content removals. Uh, that's largely because there's an existing appeals process. It's easier for Facebook in a technical sense to hook us into that appeals process and get up and running as soon as possible. I think that's just a starting point. And one of the things I really want to make sure we do is as quickly as possible expand the scope of the subject matter and appeals that we're able to hear to make sure that we can also hear uh, disputes over content that has been kept up on the platform, for example, and other types of issues about the decisions that Facebook made. I'm, I am optimistic. Uh, everyone I speak to is keen to expand that scope as, um, as soon as possible, but we have to start somewhere, and where we're starting, I think, is, is a good start. Fair enough. I mean, some some have looked at this part of it's the scope issue, but you've addressed that you'd like to to see this expanded. Some see this as a bit of a deflection exercise. We all know that there's been mounting pressure to increase the amount of regulation on Facebook, and some would argue, well, this is just a, a way of Facebook to avoiding or forestalling some of that regulation. You have concerns in that regard, and, and thoughts about how you ensure that doesn't happen. That where there is a need for regulation, that continues apace even with the, the board being put, into being put into place? Yes, of course I have concerns about the the broader political um, 
agenda and the uh, the maneuvering that's going on here as tech companies continue to engage and resist regulation from different um, countries and, and jurisdictions all around the world. And sometimes we think that that's, as, as academic commentators, we think that that's uh, important to do where we think that the policies of governments um, the, that are, or some governments who are asking companies to regulate more are deeply um, opposed to political freedoms and freedom of communication. So at other times, we really do think that uh, there should be more public oversight of the decisions that are that are made and the standards by which content is judged. And so there's a lot going on in a political sense, particularly as Europe moves to regulate more and many other countries move to uh, find a way to influence platforms. So it's important to it's in, or I guess it's impossible to divorce the uh, creation of a, of a self-regulatory system like the Oversight Board from that broader context. Having said that, I think it's also incredibly important to, um, to note that I don't think that this Oversight Board does displace the need for regulation. Um, as I said at the start earlier on, technology platforms are always going to have zones of self-regulation, zones of discretion where they get to interpret the rules of different states and, and make decisions about what they're, uh, how they're going to comply with the, the laws of, uh, of nation states and how they're going to enforce their own rules that don't conflict with, uh, with the legal limits set by the jurisdictions in which they operate. And so I see this work as complementary to regulation in a sense in that even, even if we get stronger content rules, uh, that apply to social media platforms, I think we will always need to improve the um, quality of internal decision-making, and I think that's important. But also, coming back to the political issue, that pressure is exactly what can give rise to the impetus to create uh, more legitimate systems. In my book, I essentially argue that we should use that pressure. There's a, the reason we're here is that Facebook has been losing legitimacy. They've been losing the trust of regulators around the world and users around the world that their policies are good and that they're enforced in a way that is legitimate. So I think we've got an opportunity here to seize, in a really pragmatic sense, the pressure that is on Facebook in order to force it to, uh, to do better. So that process of self-constitutionalization, to, to put a technical word to it, uh, never arises spontane spontaneously. You don't expect private profit-maximizing companies to uh, voluntarily limit their own power. It only comes out of intense and sustained pressure from governments, from civil society, from academics, from commentators, from users all around uh, who are demanding the platforms do better. And I think that's the point where we are now. So the, this is a response to that pressure from Facebook, clearly, but I, I think that it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to use that pressure to hold Facebook 
more accountable in a real pragmatic sense. As we think about, as you embark, as I should say, on, on this particular journey with the board, what does success look like to you? You know, if we assess this in a year or two, um, what would you think would constitute success for this board? How we measure success is an excellent question and both, a, both an easy and a really difficult one. So the easy answer, I think, is that we have fairly straightforward goals here. Can we push Facebook to make its policies and practices better judged against international human rights norms? The difficult part of that is how we're going to actually measure that and how we're going to um, to report on it. We are required, I think, which is a good thing to report every year about uh, the the processes that we've gone through and the, the, the success and otherwise the challenges that we've had. But I think we're going to have to find out quite quickly how we're going to identify and measure the difference that we make here. Because a lot of our power is soft power and it's, it's rhetorical power that we do have binding power to hear appeals, but we'll only be able to hear a tiny proportion of appeals across the the billions of takedown decisions that an organisation like Facebook makes every month. So the real power here is in our ability to explain our decisions, to give people voice as they try to get Facebook to listen to the concerns that they have about content policy and the power to make Facebook answer to policy recommendations that we can make that will have a, a broader impact on, on policy than just the individual case that we're deciding. So for me personally, the questions here are, can we make sure that we identify and we hear the trickiest, most important cases? Can we give people a voice? Can we make people feel heard in uh, the process of making decisions that, that have a real impact on their lives? And can we actually help uh, provide a focal point and some insight into the really, a focal point for discussions and insight into the really tricky issues. The, that's, I think, the, the work that we have ahead of us to, in our, uh, in our decisions to be able to have a broader conversation, not just with Facebook, but with people all around the world about how we might work through some of the trickiest issues facing internet content today. Measuring success on that is necessarily qualitative. Can we improve the quality of these debates? Can we improve accountability in a way that is not just used to ward off regulation as theatre? I, I think we, we, should, um, we should definitely be measured on our ability to do that, and we should report on our ability to do that. But there's a little bit of work to be done to work out how exactly we're going to measure those more qualitative values. Indeed. Well, that, that's a pretty amb ambitious agenda, but it's uh, certainly it's a board and an issue that, uh, as you know, is attracting an enormous amount of attention, and I think people will be uh, watching really carefully. 
so so good luck with what is bound to be uh, certainly an interesting experience and one that's pretty challenging along the way. Nick, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. I really appreciate it. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.